Good morning, church. The sermon outlines are being handed out right now. I'm, I apologize. Uh, I sent it in a little late, so it didn't get printed in time. Now, you may be looking at it and going, how is that possible, David? It's four lines. How could you have possibly gotten it late? Well, the reason is because is I haven't actually written a sermon. Yeah, that's right. We're about to do something a little crazy. Um, Andrew, can you take that slide down, please? We are going to do something a little different. The best way to describe it is when I was a kid, I used to read uh, stories, and one of the books types you could read is one where you'd read a portion, and then the author would give you a choice. You can either go here, or you can go here. And so today is Matthew 9, but we're going to call it Create Your Own Sermon. A uh, couple clarifications. One, when I told my father this, he responded and said, you know you actually have to preach from Matthew 9, right? So yes, all of what we're going to cover and the choices we're going to give are all from Matthew 9. Two, worst case scenario, if it's bad, Warren's preaching next week and you'll get a great sermon next week. So we're good. All right, so let's pray to start. Lord, I just thank you for our time to come together uh, and to dive into your word and to seek you and to know you more as we learn about what you've do, how you lived and how that should impact our lives. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw that out today as we go, go into the sermon. All right, so in your notes, you'll see the first four lines basically reminding us of what we've talked about, which is that Matthew has written the book of Matthew in such a way that it's drawing out Jesus as the faithful Israelite. So from, Genesis, from Matthew 1 on, you're going to see Jesus living out Israel's history faithfully. So Matthew 1 starts the Genesis of Jesus. Even though it says genealogies, the faithful Greek is Genesis of Jesus. And so right from the get-go, you hit it, hit the ground running, we're reminded of that. Even the genealogy itself has a feel of Genesis. We continue on, we move a little bit farther into the story, we see Joseph, and he is, just like his namesake from Genesis, he's a dreamer, and he dreams, and God constantly guides him. And so you get to see that, that living out there. We're moving into Exodus, and you get to see Herod killing babies, very reminiscent of Pharaoh. And so we're getting to see that continuous movement there. Jesus uh, escapes from Pharaoh, and then he comes back into the land. And when he does, he is coming through the waters, just the same way that Moses brings the Israelites through the Red Sea. And Jesus is bringing that, that new, you know, he's bringing the people into a new promised land when he's doing that. We then get to the point where, just in the story of Israel, we reach Mount Sinai. In this case, we, reach, we see Jesus in Matthews 5 through 7 going up onto the mountain, and he is teaching us on the Sermon on the Mount a new law, a new way to live. We move on from there, and we get to see, then we're coming down, and we're headed towards that new promised land. And just as Daryl drew out last week, um, Miriam speaks against Moses and is, receives leprosy. Um, the, one of the first things you see Jesus doing as he comes down is he heals a leper. Um, and so you get to see, again, this just continue faithfulness through. So now we're moving into chapter 9, and we should expect to see similar sort of parallels. Now, one of the things I want to point out here is, is there's actually twice that they head towards the promised land, not once, but twice. And so because Jesus is the faithful one, 
you'll get to see him only head once to the you know to this new land but you may see you know you may see uh echoes from both so for instance in number 16 Jesus or, uh, Moses receives opposition from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and then that's when like, the ground opens up and the people are taken in. In the same way, you get to see in chapter 9, you get to see this opposition with the Pharisees where they're, they're opposing him. They're standing directly against him. Uh, in chapter 9, verse 36, uh, it says that the people are like a sheep without a shepherd. And the same thing is said when Moses is told he can't go into the promised land. He asks God, he says, the people are like a sheep without a shepherd. They need someone. And so in this case, Joshua is placed uh, as the, the new leader. And in the Greek, Joshua is Jesus. And so J- Jesus' name is the same meaning as Joshua's, and that is Yahweh saves. So of all the names to be chosen, that's the one. And so here he is living that out. He is that one who's going to be their new shepherd. And then the final one is, is in Numbers 14. This is at the point where God, uh, God has sent, the, Moses has sent the 12 into the land. They come back. Ten say, uh-uh, this is a bad place. We're going you know, to get run over. We can't go. And God says, ten times you have tested me. Ten times. Now, those 10 start from when they reach the Red Sea and they don't trust God to save them from the Egyptians until this one. And so from there you get uh, two times that he doesn't, they don't trust um, Jesus, uh, God to save them from a people group, two times that they don't trust him to su- provide water, four times they don't trust him for food, one time they, don't, they basically have idolatry, and one they complain against God and it's very vague as to what exactly happened. So there are 10 times. Now in Matthew 8 and 9... You get to see 10 times Jesus perform miracles. Pretty nice. Nice workout. So this is, this is how the faithful version should have been, right? Is, is there's 10 miracles because he's faithfully living it out and not being like the Israelites. And then also there are 10 times that it says someone either followed or follow. He, you know, Jesus says, follow me in there. And so that's always what it's been was, is we were supposed to be following and the Israelites didn't. They didn't trust. They didn't, weren't faithful. And Jesus is. So this is sort of where we are, which is Jesus is that faithful Israelite. He's living out the, the new law and he's showing us how that new covenant should be. So now your choice, your first one. Would you like to look at how Jesus is forming a new Israel or how Matthew 9 fits in context with the chapters around it. And so what we'll do is a democratic vote for this. <laughs> it's the best I can do. Uh, we talked about some type of app or something like that with Michael. But, and I apologize to those who are distance. You don't get a vote. I'm sorry. Um, so choices are New Israel. Hands for New Israel. Wow, a lot of votes. Two. All right, the other one is Matthew 8 through 9, or, you know, sort of Matthew 8 in context. One vote. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Oh, no, it's an even split. <laughs> oh, 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 we got, we got back, I'm back there. Okay, so we're going to go looking at Matthew 8 and, or Matthew 9 in context because we have 10 votes for Matthew 10, 9 in context versus uh, 9 for New Israel. So... Let's see how this goes. So just like when we flip in my book to figure out where exactly we are, I have to do the same thing. So just give me a second here. So, so last week, Daryl pointed out the fact that if you read Isaiah 35, it very much 
looks like what you start to see in Matthew 8 and 9. And so I'll just draw out a couple verses in Isaiah 35. Andrew, if you would go to chapter er, to verse 5 and 6 of Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstocked. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. All right. Let's just remember all the people who Jesus just healed. He's got a paralytic, right? A mute demon, d- demoniac. Um, we don't get a deaf man. We're still looking for that one. Um, but we also get the, uh, the blind who are healed, right? So we get, to see, we get to start to see Jesus bringing these things forth. But then if you jump farther down and you go to verse 8, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Now what it doesn't say is that the person who's going to do this is going to heal the unclean. It just says the unclean won't walk this way. But Jesus does anyway. You get the leper. You get the the woman with the flow of blood. These people who are unclean, Jesus doesn't just say, well, you can't walk on this way. He goes, no, you're healed. And so he takes this this, uh, Messiah type and it becomes an even deeper level. And you start to look at things like the very beginning of eight, or, you know, right in the middle there, and Jesus calms the sea. Now, that was not one of the ones that was supposed to be on the list, and yet he does it. And he's starting to change and bring people to recognize that what their expectation of who the Messiah was supposed to be is much deeper, much deeper than what we expected. He's consistently just bringing that out for us. And so we get healings of sickness, and demon possession just constantly throughout. And the, the idea is, is that there's not this, this point where like, this is what the Messiah can do because he's more than what we expected. The only one who can be faithful enough to do all of this is God himself. And so he is the one who fits in that, and he's living that out for us. All right, so your next choice is one. We can either look how... Matthew is communicating way more in the order he tells his stories in than you would expect, or you can see how some people are seeing more clearly than others. So one is how Matthew communicates way more with this order of his storytelling. The other one is how people are seeing more clearly than you would expect. Okay, so for the order of stories, vote for that. Vote, yes, yes, one, two, three. I think this one's going to win. All right, or for those who are seeing more clearly. Okay, so, yeah. All right, okay. So, to, yes, we're going to go with the, uh, what I'm going to call literary structure because that is what this is. And so, at the end of the day, what we need to remember is, is that we are reading a book that has a very different form of storytelling than what we do ourselves. And the easiest way to sort of think about this is... Not that I should be talking to you too much about this, but if you've taken an art appreciation class, they will point out to you things like if you're looking at a painting or that type of thing, you will notice that there is a point where your eye is drawn to. There is a thing that is the primary focus, and then there are things that are secondary focus. And in the same way, the Bible actually does this. It draws us to a certain focus, and we shouldn't be ignoring that fact. 
Now that may seem weird to you. Let me give you some examples of things that we do this with. Let's start with palindromes. Familiar with palindromes? Race car. If you can spell it forwards and backwards, it's the same word. Okay, so you've got R A C E. Okay, race car. In the same way, the Bible works similar to this. And so you can have things like Madam, I'm Adam. And if you spell that backwards and forwards, it spells the same thing, which could be what Adam introduced himself to Eve with. <laughs> Sorry, I had to work that in there someplace. <laughs> okay, so let's, a little bit more, more serious uh, thinking about this. Uh, to, to know, to, another example, to know the measure of love, you must love without measure. So you have measure, love, love, okay? So to know the measure of love, you must love without measure. With me? So we're, you know, we've got the measures on both sides, we've got the love on both sides. It's, it's drawing this sort of like focus. Winners never quit, quitters never win. Winners never quit, quitters never win. This is the movement, okay? It's drawing your focus to a certain point. Genesis 9, 6. Whoever sheds the blood of a human, a human shall be the, per- uh, by a human, that person's blood shall be shed. Okay, so we've got bloodshed, human. With me? Whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human, that person's blood shall be shed. So shed, bloodshed, human, okay? This flow, this structure, as weird as it sounds, is about a th- at least a thousand times used throughout the Bible. So it's, it's not like once or twice. It's about a thousand times that scholars have identified that this is the case. So when someone tells you, well, you know, you should really pay attention to this thing because it, it appears like a hundred times in the Bible— this is a thousand times, okay? So something semi-important we should be paying attention to. Uh, for instance, because I love Leviticus so much, I will point out this one to you, which is that uh, Leviticus makes way more sense if you notice the fact that it actually is drawing us to a specific focus, and that's Leviticus 16 and 17, which is the center of the book in this structure. And it's about the Day of Atonement, which is about the focus of atoning for sins and for repentance. And so the whole book is drawing us to this focus, and we shouldn't ignore that fact. And if you notice that this is in the middle, then everything else that starts to move back outwards makes way more sense. Uh, Esther, if you go to Esther 6, this is the uh, reversal of the story. This is the point where Haman is humiliated and Mordecai is exalted. And if you start to look at how it moves back outwards, you get to see the undoing and the redoing of the story as it moves back outwards, okay? So this is how the Bible tells stories. It's not how we think about telling stories. It really helps to understand this because you can't, unless you're willing to go learn Greek and Hebrew, this can be a really helpful way to identify how things make sense that would otherwise be very, very confusing. So with that being said, Stephen, would you mind? We are going to look at what Matthew has done with Matthew 9. And I put this up here because we will have slides, but those who are distant won't be able to see the slides, so I have uh, one that I planned ahead for for them. Perfect. Uh, Andrew, can you throw up that slide for me? Fantastic. All right, so again, what we're going to notice is that at the beginning and the end are going to correspond, and we're progressively going to move into the middle. That's the order of how Matthew is telling the story for Matthew 9. So Matthew 9, 1 and 2, Jesus is forgiving the paralytic's sins. 
Um, and then he's accused of blaspheming, which, again, if you go to sort of like that second from the bottom one, that one's a really easy one to see. Jesus is accused, you know, he casts out the demons, and he's accused of be doing it by the ruler of demons. So he's being accused, again, of doing something that he shouldn't be and not doing it rightly. I apologize if this is a little on the small side. It's hard to fit it all in. Um, then you get to see, again, the next move sort of in. Jesus heals the paralytic and the multitudes marvel. On the other side, Matthew 9, 32 to 33, Jesus heals the mute demoniac and the multitudes marvel. Okay, so we're moving progressively inwards as we go, okay? Then you get Matthew, the tax collector. And then on the other side, you get the healing from death, flow of blood, and blindness. And the very center of this, the thing that pivots the whole chapter on, is the bridegroom with us in the new wine. This is the focus of the chapter. But if you were just to read it normally, you wouldn't think this is the focus. I, I didn't. I just knew this is an existing structure, so I looked up to whether or not this happened to have one and went, oh, this makes so much more sense of the chapter. And that is the thing. You don't have to be able to identify them, but you have to know they exist so that way you can look them up. So this is just one of those type of things. So with that, we get now a choice. We get to split. We have two choices. One, we can look at that central axis, the bridegroom with us, or we can look at the really sneaky thing Matthew just said about himself. Because <laughs> Matthew just said something sneaky about himself. So here's the choices. Do you want to look at the bridegroom with us, or do you want to look at what Matthew did with the sneaky, the sneaky thing he just said about himself? Because of course he's telling his own, you know, he's telling a story. You'd expect the author to hide something in there, right? So choices for it. So vote for central axis and understanding the bridegroom. Yes. All of this is going to be posted, so you can, you can always come up with another create-your-own-adventure. See, I have a flowchart. So, <laughs> so you, can, you, know, you, can, you can do your own adventure afterwards, and I'll take this back down now. Okay, so vote for bridegroom. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Eleven? Okay, the sneaky thing Matthew's doing. Fourteen, fifteen, fifteen votes for the sneaky thing Matthew is doing. Okay, all right, fantastic. So what we'll notice is is that Matthew has compared himself in this structure to the healing from death and the flow of blood and blindness. Yeah, right. This is the structure. You're going what? How in the world could this even be? Like, where is he going with this? Okay, so one of the things we want to understand. And I'll just give you a quote from one of my favorite commentators on the Bible, uh, James Jordan, in his book, The Law of the Covenant. Any process whereby life flowed away from men or women signified death, such as an issue of blood or of seed from the private parts. Additionally, contact with dead body of an, any man or unclean animal caused one to become ceremonial dead. To be cleansed of this uncleanness is to undergo a resurrection. You with me? So to be unclean is to be dead. That's what this, is, this was about. It's a reminder that you are dead. And the reason that's a problem is because God is the God of life. He is not the God of death. He is the God of life. And as such, to be associated with death is to be separated from him. And so when 
you are cleansed. When you are officially brought back out of that, you have been resurrected in a way. And it is, again, one of those echoes of the things we will see fully lived out in Jesus. Right? He really actually does this. He doesn't just partially be resurrected. He's fully resurrected. And so the same thing happens here. Now, so we get to see a girl who is actually resurrected. We get to see a woman who is spiritually resurrected, okay? And on the other side, we see Matthew, the tax collector. He is dead spiritually. You know, he is the guy who's trading money for power, basically. That's what he's doing. And Jesus calls him and he says, I give it all up so that I can have this true thing. And so this reminds us back of, say, Genesis 3, where, you know, God has said earlier in, in the chapters, he has said, if you eat of the fruit, you will die. They don't die physically, but they do get separated from God. And that's a death. And the same thing is true here, which is they are separated from God. And now Matthew, coming in to a relationship with, with Jesus, comes alive. And the same thing is, so, you know, we get to see a different type of resurrection. And this is the promise, right? Which is that we both get a spiritual resurrection, but we also get the hope in the future that we'll have a physical resurrection. And so Matthew has woven all of this into Matthew 9, way before it ever happens. Because Matthew is just like that. He's constantly dropping sort of like the answer to the story long before the story actually gets finished. Because that's just the storytelling he uses. Okay. So with that being said, we have looked at how Matthew is sneaky and what he's, filled, he's laid out. So we can look at um, the, the blind men and what they see. Or we can, look, we can go back and look at the bridegroom. I know some of you really were sad that we skipped the bridegroom one, so an option, you can go back to it now. So our two choices. We can, underst- we can look at what the, uh, you know, how the blind men sort of, can, sort of continues with this understanding, or we can look at the bridegroom theme. Okay? So, blind men. Vote for the blind men. Wow. All right, bridegroom. Fantastic. Okay. All right. You guys are really sold on that one. All right, so for that one, we're going to go to Jeremiah 3. And the reason we should go there is because if we think back to the Old Testament, Jesus is saying, hey, the bridegroom is here. You start to think to yourself, well, you know what? Wasn't like the relationship between Israel and God constantly talked about as sort of like a marriage relationship? So God's sort of already married. What's he doing getting married again? So we got to look at uh, Jeremiah 3 to sort of get some context with this. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, have you seen what she did, that faithless one Israel, how she went on every high hill and under every green tree that there and there played the whore? And I thought after she had done all this, she will return to me but she did not return. And her treacherous sister, Judah, saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she went to and played the whore because she took her whoredom lightly. She polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous then treacherous Judah, go and proclaim these words toward the north and, this, and say, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. 
I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you had not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So you get to see this point where, in one way, Israel has broken its covenant with God and is therefore has, has broken this marriage arrangement. But God is being faithful through that, in spite of that, right? And that's something that's really, um, really, really good to know, is, is that no matter, you know, like, Israel has been incredibly unfaithful, and that God continues to be faithful to, to them. And the same thing is true for us, right? Which is that we know that he is faithful to us in the same way here. Um, but it could also if you want to apply it in a different way, you could think about it from the standpoint of, boy, this should really make you think about what divorce is like, right? Which is, in spite of all the unfaithfulness, there's something there that God does. Just something to think about. All right, Ezekiel 16. We'll continue to sort of look at that. We're going to ver- start at verse 6, Andrew. Ezekiel 16, verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. And I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown. Yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. So that's a little weird wording. But if you're to stop there and start to think about what happens with the woman with the flow of blood in context with this, in context with what's just being said about the bridegroom, God has drawn Israel out. He has made them clean in the same way he makes this woman clean and he covers her with his garment. Just something to think about. Verse 15 talks about, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby, your beauty became his. Again, Israel is being incredibly unfaithful throughout all of this. But it goes on in verse 59. For thus says the Lord, I will deal with you as you have done, as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded, and never, never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord God. So here's the promise that he will be faithful and he will bring that new covenant. And we're getting to see Jesus living out that new covenant because he's given us that new law and therefore that new covenant in chapters five through seven. And then here he is being faithful, living it out for us. Unlike the Israelites who've come before, they're given the new covenant and the first thing they do is build a golden calf. That's the first thing they go and do when the story goes on. And Jesus does exactly the opposite. He is faithful. He builds this, you know, he is showing us how to live into this new covenant. And we'll go back to Jeremiah 31. 
uh, just looking more at what this new covenant looks like. Behold, the days are coming. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 31, in case that matters. 31, verse 31. There we go. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's the promise of what the new covenant's going to look like, right? And we're getting to see that flowing out here. This is the new thing. He's put it inside of us because being external wasn't enough. And so we get the spirit that's put inside of us so that we can live righteously like we've been talking about all year, right? And that's one of the things. And that is that, that new covenant that, that comes isn't, isn't about a change in what the covenant is. It's about how it's possible to live it out. The covenant is given in such a way that we can finally live into what God has called us to because he gives us the spirit. That's the thing that is different. And with that being said, you get to unlock a special one, which is that you don't get a choice on this one. We're going to go into new wine. Um, And so if you read in Matthew 7, starting at verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now if you look at that, you go, new wine, okay, cool. New covenant. But what we need to think about is really, again, same type of thing as always, reminding ourselves of what has come before. And so what we'll do is we'll go to Amos 9 for that. Verse 11, in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Eden and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the wine. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. Then they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And Joel's the same. Joel makes the same point in Joel 3, but that there is a new thing coming, and that the, the mountains are going to drip with wine. Now, so we're looking for this new covenant, but if you, you, let's get confused more before we get unconfused, because why not? So if you go to Luke, chapter 5, verses 36, you get to see Luke's version of the same um, statements that Jesus just made in Matthew. And he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be pulled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new he says the old is good. Did Jesus just say the old covenant is better than the new covenant? 
I mean, it's sort of, after, no, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. He says the old is good. That's confusing, right? Yes. Okay. All right. I'm not the only one who's confused by this. Okay. John 2. We're going to go to John 2. The wedding at Cana. Um, we're going to look at that and think about th- that in this context. Um, and so we're, you remember the wedding at Cana, they run out of wine, and Mary says, hey, ask this guy. He'll help you out with this. Now, there were six stone, jar, stone water jar, jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to them, said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Then the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, uh, th- this is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, notice what it says there at the end. This is the first of his signs and manifested his glory. So it's not just, just Jesus performing a miracle. It's a sign. Now, if we go back and think about it in context of this, the new wine is better than the old wine. It's not that the old wine was bad but the new wine is even better. That's what we have to keep in mind. Now, you've probably been confused by Acts 2 a little bit, so we'll think about it in the same context. This is the day of Pentecost, right? (laughs) When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them, and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there they were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound of the multitudes came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these men who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying they are filled with new wine. You see what they did there? The authors did that. <laughs> they took an insult and said, yep, we are. The new wine is better than the old wine. It's been poured out. The new covenant has come. And these people are living fully into the new covenant, drawing the nations back. And that's in what we're, we're seeing here in Matthew 9. Jesus is doing the same thing, right? We're seeing him drawing in Matthew 8, right? We, we get to see the leper. We get to see the, the, guy, uh, the, um, the centurion's servant, servant of a Gentile. And you get to see demoniacs, the whole spread of people who were not supposed to be part of the kingdom. And Jesus is bringing them back because that is how you live out the kingdom. Lord, I thank you today 
for showing us more about Matthew 9. And I, Lord, Lord, I just pray that we will, again, continue to just appreciate the, what it means to have your spirit dwelling in us and to be living out that in our lives. In your name.